You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So one of the most important aspects of learning something new, as we all know, is repetition. This is something we've all experienced. You can think back to uh, a young age, something like handwriting, for example. How, how did you and I, most of us, learn handwriting? Well, we wrote that letter on that dotted line. You guys remember those? Over and over and over again until we, we understood how to write it on our own. Um, think, think of professional athletes. Yes, they... Uh, they've honed their skills not only over years of, of practice from a young age, drills and things like that, but every year at training camp or spring training, what are athletes doing? They're repeating throws over and over and over again, swings, uh, their pitches, they're running routes, all sorts of things that, it, that consist of repetition, constantly reviewing playbooks and, and strategies until those things are baked into their minds. Actors and actresses remember and recite lines over and over again. Musicians review scales and, and so on. Uh, several years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote this best-selling book called Outliers. And he, he famously said that it takes about, through research, it takes about 10,000 hours of good repetitive practice to become an expert at something. And it's really interesting, not only is that true about habits, but it's also true about our brain. Brain science tells us that through repetition, the brain forms new pathways when a task is repeated. So, so it optimizes the performance of that particular skill. Even our, our bodies, our nerves, our muscles, and our, our bones, they grow and adapt when they're challenged with repeated patterns of usage, right? That's why those of you who have done physical therapy before, what are you doing? You're repeating, oftentimes very painfully, the same thing over and over again. God's designed us to learn this way. And so it's, it's no surprise And when we come to the scriptures, generally, uh, we come to Exodus 7, in these early chapters of Exodus, more specifically, we see a story full of repetition. In fact, if you've been with us since chapter 1, you might have heard some things in this story this morning, in chapter 7, that sound very similar to what happened in chapter 4. There seems to be a lot of repetition from God to Moses and Aaron and his people in these early chapters. What I want to do this morning is hone in on one message that seems to be repeated and emphasized here in chapter 7. We've seen it already many times in the book of Exodus in these early chapters. And that simple message from the Lord to Moses, to Aaron, to the people of God is this. I will defeat your enemy. That's the message that God is repeating over and over and over again. Let's go back a little bit and let me show you this. Exodus chapter 3. Verse 20, what does God tell Moses when he appears to him in the burning bush? He says, I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. What's God saying? I will defeat your enemy. 
Exodus chapter 4, God gives Moses these powerful signs. A staff turns into a snake and back again. His hand turns leprous and then is healed. There's this foreshadowing of the Nile River turning into to blood, which we'll start to see next week. And all of the, these things are communicating a simple message from God to Moses. What is God saying? I will defeat your enemy. In chapters 5 and 6, Pastor Clint walked us through last week. After the increased suffering at the hands of Pharaoh, when the people are are overwhelmed with discouragement, Moses as well, Aaron as well, what does the Lord do? He repeats his covenant promise again. Exodus 6 verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm And with great acts of judgment. In some, what is God saying? I will defeat your enemy. And then here we come again. Chapter 7. You hear it in verse 4. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. I will defeat your enemy. God is repeating this here, but he's not, he's not repeating this like a, a musician or, or an athlete or a teacher. He's not trying to hone some skill of his own. Here, he is more like a general of an army. A real battle is about to begin. This is a turning point in the book of Exodus, chapter 7. Because this battle is about to get, begin between Pharaoh and his false gods and the one true God who is going to bring these plagues against Egypt. And this, in this repetition, what, what God is doing in our passage this morning, seven, we'll focus on 7, 1 through 13, is he's reviewing the battle plan with his doubtful and discouraged commanders, Moses and Aaron. He's reminding them. He's repeating himself in a different way. And he's saying, listen, guys, my battle plan is really simple. I will defeat your enemy. Now, while the context is, is really, obviously, is very different. That's an understatement. We're not like uh, uh, slaves in ancient Egypt. But the core realities that we experience as followers of Christ and people who live uh, in this day and age, are the same. They're, they're timeless. Think of it this way. Israel, they faced evil in the form of a wicked leader. They faced wickedness. Something you and I face the evil of others in our lives in various sorts of ways. They experienced sin struggles in their own hearts. We'll see that more as we continue through this, this story in future chapters. We too face our own sins. They suffered. We suffer. And the repeated message that God wants to give to them, to Moses, to Aaron, to Israel, is the same message for us. It's simple. God is telling us, I will defeat your enemy. The battle belongs to me. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and I want to draw this out in three uh, parts this morning. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We'll pull a little bit from chapter 6 as well. Three things, okay? Number one, we need to be reminded of the battle plan. We see that in verses 1 through 5. We need to be reminded of the battle plan. Number two, we need to be equipped for the battle, verses 6 through 12. And then third and finally, we need to be aware of the battle in our own hearts, verse 13. So, 
Number one, we must be reminded of the battle plan. Let's start again. Let's look at the end of chapter 6, verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now again, if you've been with us in Exodus, this sounds like repetition from Moses, doesn't it? Right? Very similar to chapters 3 and 4. God says, Moses, you're going you're gonna to go with your brother and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, nah, I, don't know, I don't know about that. I can't talk good. Right? That's sort of his response. He says, no one's going to listen. But here, there seems to be, if you remember last week, if you're with us, now you can go back and read those chapters later, he seems to have reason to doubt, right? Because what happened in, chapters, in chapter 5? He and Aaron did exactly what God said. They go to Pharaoh for the first time. They request a three-day journey to worship God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh does not grant them that request. He refuses to listen. And, in, and as a result, he gets angry and makes the suffering of Israel worse. And now, the Lord is telling him to go again. So I wonder, we don't know, but I wonder if Moses is thinking, I already tried that, Lord. And it didn't go the way I'd hoped. <laughs> like I thought, you know, you, you did the snake thing with the stick, the leprosy thing with my hand. I thought I was going to go in there, and even, even though he, the Lord told him, but it didn't go the way I'd hoped. And so we immediately see a point of parallel between us and Moses here, don't we? If you've ever had a season in your life of, of wondering, God, what are you doing here? And why is it taking so long? And why didn't it go the way I had hoped? Then you understand how Moses feels here. If you've ever planned something out in your life, you've prepared for it, and then you've just had those plans like dashed to pieces, then you know how Moses feels here. So he says, I... I, I I don't think I can go. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Now, he may mean by that, he may be pointing back to the earlier chapter where he, thinking of his own sin, where he failed to circumcise his own son in obedience to God's word. He may be thinking of the fact that he's, you know, see, I'm not a comp competent sort of spokesman for you. We're not really sure, but he's, it's very similar to what he said in chapter three. He's discouraged. And how does the Lord respond? I love this. The, the Lord doesn't say, I'm so sorry, Moses. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get Pharaoh next time. Right? He's, Moses is caught off guard by what happened in chapter 5. But the Lord's not caught off guard. He's saying, this is, this is all a part of the battle plan. And so how does he respond? He goes, Moses, let me remind you of this promise. And he reestablishes the battle plan. And that's how chapter 7 begins. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though, I'm, uh, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people, the people of Israel, from among them. That's a reestablishment of the plan. Really nothing new there. God's telling him again. He's reminding him of the battle plan. Now there are three parts of this. And pay attention as we work through these because these are the same. This battle plan is the same battle plan for us. God draws out three things in these five verses as he's reminding him of the battle plan. First, he reminds Moses that redemption will be through judgment. Okay, Redemption's not going to be... God could have easily... Sort of done, you know, the Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, with, with, uh, with Israel, just taking them out of the land and move them. But that's not what he does. Verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, my children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by acts of great judgment. It's as if God is saying, don't forget, Moses, I'm not just delivering you. I'm not just redeeming you and my people. I have other purposes in what I'm doing. Namely, I am bringing judgment against Pharaoh and his false gods. It's not just redemption that God's providing. It's redemption through judgment. That's a reminder to us, reminded to Moses, that God's ways are not our ways. His his purposes are not always our purposes. And when we face battles against the enemies of evil in our own lives, our own sin, suffering in a fallen world, we rightfully beg God for redemption and deliverance. But we have to understand that God has other purposes in our struggles as well. Several years ago, John Piper posted uh, on Twitter, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them, right? I imagine Moses feels like that first interaction with Pharaoh is a defeat. But God is saying, no, 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 no. I have another purpose here. It's not just to redeem you, which will come, but I'm redeeming you through judgment. I am bringing judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Now God, God's reminding him here. You might feel defeated, Moses. I'm not defeated. My purposes aren't thwarted. I'm about to bring this judgment because I'm displaying my glory. So redemption comes through judgment. That's part one of the battle plan. Here's the second part. He's also reminding Moses of his covenant. Now I, I, I missed this the first several readings. Of, of chapter uh, 7. But look at verse 4. These simple phrases. He says, My hosts, my people, the children of Israel. These, these are reminders of God's covenant promises to Israel. Who do these people belong to? They don't belong to Egypt. You might say, Wait a second, they're in slavery to them. Yes, absolutely. But ultimately, God, what does God say to them here? No, you are my people. You're my hosts. They belong to God. That's meant to be a, a comfort for God's people and a comfort for Moses. And, and Christian, think about that. What a comfort for us when you're facing overwhelming battles, right? You feel like you're facing defeat. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one. We've probably quoted this catechism question in our, the life of our church more than any other question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, 
Jesus Christ. God's reminding Moses, these are my people. You are my covenant people. I was speaking with a sister in Christ recently. She's not from our church. She was wrestling with fear and anxiety in the face of just some very challenging battles in, in her life. And she was sharing about how the more she tried to strategize and sort of find out possible outcomes, the more anxious and fearful she became. Then, just in, in God's providence, she's reading through 1 Corinthians 6, and she shared this phrase in verses 19 and 20 that became an immense comfort to her, like a moment of awakening for her in this battle. And that's, Paul says simply this, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. The most important question for for Moses, for Aaron, for the Israelites, for you and I to ask in our battles is not how can I defeat this, but whose am I? Who do I belong to? And friends, for those of us who are in Christ, who have trusted in Jesus, we belong to him. We are his covenant people. He will never leave us or forsake us. It's part of the battle plan. Then God reminds Moses, third and finally, of his goal to bring about the knowledge of himself. So we get another glimpse of, of, of God's purposes in this battle against evil. It's not just to redeem, and it's, it's not even just to redeem and judge, but it's also so that he can make his name known, so that he can be glorified. So you might go, why did this, this thing take so long? Why didn't he just immediately deliver them? Well, God is telling us here, it's so that I can make my name known among the nations we saw this last week in chapter 6 he tells speaks says this of Israel as uh, Exodus 6 7 I will take you Israel to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God and here chapter 7 he says he's going to display himself his glory his greatness to this nation that rejects him, Egypt, verse, seven, or verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. There's a purpose greater than just deliverance. It's deliverance and redemption through judgment. God is bringing his covenant people and he's making his name known. And this is such an important theme all throughout the Bible. All of the battles that Moses is about to face, all the plagues, through the deliverance, through the the leading of of God's people, all of it is meant to deepen their knowledge of the greatness and glory of God and his character. So that they would know how loved they are by him, so they would love him more. God is displaying himself in this battle. Friends, do you notice that this reminder to Moses, these three things are the pattern of the gospel. That's the message of the Christian faith. The gospel message is redemption of sinners and sufferers like you and me through judgment of Jesus Christ, our substitute, through the cross and empty grave so that we may be made into a covenant people and so that the glory of God, the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk says. That's the battle plan. 
We need to be reminded of it continually. We need it reestablished in our minds and our hearts as well. Why? Because, I don't know about you, I'm slow of hearing. I'm weak in faith. I suffer often from gospel amnesia. When I face battles in my own life, discouragements, and I think, oh, where is God? How long is this going to take? I don't like this. And I forget that God's battle plan for my life, for his world today, is the gospel. Martin Luther has this great quote about the gospel being of first importance. It's the foundational truth. He's talking about being justified by by Christ. And he says it's so important that we, we must repeat it often. And he's talking to pastors. He's saying you must beat it into their heads continually. Kind of a, that's real like strong language, right? But the point is, this is something that we must be continually reminded of. So how, how does that work? How can you and I remind ourselves of God's battle plan in the gospel? It's very simple. It's through what we call the ordinary means of grace. The London Baptist Confession talks about, quote, the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer in the word as appointed means of God to remind us of who God is and what he's done. So when you participate in these things, when you come to the gathering, when you're opening up your Bible, let me encourage you to view that not just as a, a rote religious exercise, but you're doing, you're doing battle. It's, it's war to remind yourself that Jesus is the one who wins. The Lord will defeat our enemy. Reestablish that in your mind continually. That's number one. We need to be reminded of God's battle plan. Number two, we also have to be equipped for the battle. Look at verse six. It says, Moses and Aaron, they did so. So they, they do listen to the Lord. They go back just as the Lord commanded. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old. And when they spoke to Pharaoh, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now we'll get into the plagues. We'll start getting into the plagues uh, that God sends next week. But this is where the battle begins. This is, this is like the round one of this battle between God and Pharaoh in Egypt and their false gods. And there's a few narrative clues in the story that are important for us. They show us really just what a transition this is. First is the ages of Moses and Aaron are, are listed. You see that? They're, they're 80 and 83 years old. Well, why is that significant? Well, biblically, ages are often given when a, an important mission is about to begin. Sort of this uh, you know, momentous occasion. So Genesis 17, Abraham was 99 years old. Genesis 41, Joseph was 37 years old. We, we also see this in the previous chapter. In this, There's a genealogy of Moses and Aaron given at the end of chapter 6. And what that's, what that's doing is it's showing us, listen, here's God's chosen men. Here's where they came from. And part of that, I, I think, is because there, there might have been some question about this Moses guy who grew up in Egypt in the courts of Pharaoh and then was gone for so long. 
And this is also a way of validating who Moses is as well. And then chapter 7 begins, and, and what does God say? See, I have made you, Moses, like God to Pharaoh, and your brother shall be a prophet. There's a big turning point in Exodus that's really establishing Moses and Aaron here. They're, they're signifying, listen, these are God's appointed messengers, and the battle is about to begin. And God tells them to go and to, to cast down the staff and show a sign of God's power. Now, it's important for us to ask and dwell on this for a minute. What is the significance of the staff? This is the, this is the staff, the stick, the shepherd's staff that Moses had as a shepherd. When God appeared to him through the form of a burning bush in chapter 3, it was likely somewhere between 3 to 6 feet long. It was just a normal shepherd's staff. And then in chapter 4, God gives Moses this glimpse of his power by turning the staff into a snake and then back again when he picks it up. Then in chapter 4, verse 20, this staff is called the staff of God. The staff of God. We'll see next week that the staff is used to bring about the plagues against Egypt. As we go out through, go through the, the rest of Exodus, we'll see this again and again. It's a staff of judgment, but it's also a staff of provision. In, in chapter 14, the, the staff is used to miraculously part the Red Sea, providing a, a way through on dry land. In Exodus 17, the staff is used to provide water from the rock in the desert so that the thirsty Israelites can have a drink, right? So they don't die of thirst. Now here in chapter 7, what happens with the staff? Well, Aaron throws it down, just as the Lord says, and it becomes a serpent. Now you might hear that and say, oh yeah, that happened in chapter 4. Here's what's interesting about this though. The word for serpent here in chapter 7 is a different Hebrew word than the word used in chapter 4, where the staff becomes a snake. The word here is a, it's a bigger animal. It means like river monster or um, a dragon is a, is a common translation, or a number of Old Testament scholars like John Salheimer believe that what happened was the staff turned into a crocodile, which would have been a, an Egyptian god that was worshipped. And, and here's the point here. This is greater than the, the miracle of chapter 4. This is a greater creature. This is a greater display of God's power, and that continually happens throughout this battle. God's continually displaying the greatness of his power in increasing measure. Now then the, the magicians do the exact same thing. And this is crazy. Like when you're reading this, you're like, is this a Dungeons and Dragons description? Is this the Bible? What's going on here? But their staffs turn into to snakes as well, to serpents as well. I have no idea how that happened. I don't know if they, some people say, well, they, you know, they sort of like made the snakes dead to look like a stick and then revive them. I'm like, that's weird. I don't, it, it's, what I think happened is there was demonic power at play here. And so their staffs actually turned into serpents. But what does this creature, this other staff, God's staff, what does it do? It completely and immediately devours up their serpents, right? The Lord wins round one of the battle. Now, again, the significance of the staff. Why is this so important? I think it's important for a number of things. First, had Moses and Aaron used something else? Maybe they just go in and sort of wave their hands around, you know, like this, and magic happens. I imagine that the people of Israel would have said, 
Look at their power. Look at their power. Look at Moses' power. Look at, look at Aaron's power. These are powerful men who work amazing miracles. But God chose this staff to display. He chose this inanimate object that you can find in the woods to display that it's his power. Right? The, the battle is not Moses and Aaron versus Pharaoh, but the one true God versus Pharaoh and his false gods. And, and the reason Moses and Aaron are victorious is not because of their own strength. We see them just wrestling with doubt, cowering in fear, just like us, right? No, the reason they're victorious is because they relied upon the Lord. And that's what the staff is a symbol of. Francis Schaeffer wrote this great little essay called No Little People, No Little Places. And he talks about the staff. He says this, consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we're not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people. The problem for each of us is applying this truth to ourselves. Here's the question. Is Francis Schaeffer the Francis Schaeffer of God? I love how Schaeffer applies this here. Think of this as we face our own battles, right? He's, he's telling us, listen, Christian, you don't need a staff. That's why we don't walk around carrying sticks today as Christians. That actually would be kind of cool, but we don't do that. Schaefer says, you don't need a staff. You are the staff. You are a vessel filled with the power of God's spirit. The spirit, Christian, fills you and equips you. We, we fight our battles, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit. Now, we're not up against a wicked Pharaoh and his false gods, but we do fight the battles of our own sin, right? We, we do live in a world, as, as we saw last week, that seeks to defy and discredit the Word of God. We're up against that battle every day in our culture. And we, we have an enemy Peter says, who, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think we Christians in 2023 in a city like Boston have a really hard time believing that that's true. Do you believe what, what Paul says in Ephesians 6, that a war is waging that we can't see, a spiritual battle, do you believe that when you're at odds with your spouse, 
There is a spiritual battle at work for your souls. When you're in conflict with others, there is a spiritual war for your allegiance. When you're discontent at your, your lack of spiritual growth or you're, you're facing suffering or when you're fighting sin, do you believe that this battle is raging? And are you going to fight the battle, not in your own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit? Paul goes on in Ephesians 6, Therefore, this is how he applies What we should do, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Listen to these applications he just lists here. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Friends, we can fight that battle, we who believe in Christ, because God has given us His Spirit. He has made Kevin Sanders the Kevin Sanders of God. He has made you, Christian, the you of God equipped with his spirit to fight the battles. That's a, that's a constant, repeated message for Moses and Aaron in Israel throughout the story, throughout the Pentateuch. And it's a, a constant, repeated message for me. You want to be equipped to fight the battles of this life in a fallen world, we must rely upon him and his spirit. We must be equipped for the battle. Then third and finally, we must be aware of the battle in our own hearts. We must be reminded of the battle plan, we must be equipped for the battle, and we must be aware of the battle in our own hearts. The last verse in this passage this morning is verse 13. So all this happens, giant crocodile swallows these other snake sticks. That sounded weird when I said it out loud, but that's what happens. And then you, how does Pharaoh respond? Verse 13, still, Pharaoh hardened, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now I said earlier, we started off by saying repetition is an important aspect of of learning, which is true, but Pharaoh shows us here that repetition, mere repetition is not enough, right? God's repetition of these things for Moses and Aaron, for the people of God, for for people who are in the faith, it, it grows their faith in God. But for Pharaoh, he's hardened by this repetition. Now, we know this. We know that repetition in itself is not enough. Um, If I asked this room, don't raise your hands, but if I asked you, how many of you know that there are health benefits of participating in physical exercise three to four times a week, most hands would go up. Probably every hand, right? Then if I asked you, okay, how many of you actually exercise three to four times a week, a lot less hands would go up. Why? Because the the knowledge of something doesn't automatically lead to transformation and putting it into practice, right? For knowledge to lead to transformation, 
for repetition to actually have an effect and lead to a change, it has to capture our hearts. It has to capture our affections and our desires. We need to think deeply about Pharaoh here. This man saw God's miraculous power in incredible ways, and he wasn't even phased. And we have to ask the question, why? Yes, it's because God sovereignly hardened his heart, but this wasn't against Pharaoh's own desires and evil intentions. We'll see next week that the language of chapter 8 verse 15 tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So this is a part of this mystery of God's total sovereignty over the human heart and man's full responsibility coexisting in a mysterious way. Both are true. So if we just go, well, God hardened his heart, that really shouldn't apply to us. We're missing something here. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a factory continually producing idols, things to trust in and worship, and Pharaoh's no exception. So what was Pharaoh's heart problem? What was he worshiping? Well, not only did he, did he worship the, the false pagan gods of Egypt, he also worshiped the same idols you and I are tempted to cling to in our own hearts. He worshipped the, the comforts and materialism of his kingdom. Of course he didn't want to let the people go. Imagine what that would do to his quality of life. Imagine what that would do to his status. He worshipped control and power. We saw this last week when he defies God, right? He believed that he was fully autonomous and that he answers to no one. That he's fully in charge, which by the way, he's completely denied the history of his own nation because had he read his history books well, he would have known that through Joseph, God is the one who provided so that Egypt still even exists, but he worships his own control and power and autonomy. Does that sound like the modern idol of today? He worshiped himself. I'm fully autonomous. No one can tell me what to do, and thus he denies the Lord. You see, when we read this story, and I do this as well, we just did it in this passage, we likely see ourselves in Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, right? And try to apply that to our life. That's good and right. But Moses, the author, he wants to warn us and his original readers with the idolatrous, hardened heart of Pharaoh. The original audience of Exodus would have been the Israelites who were led through the wilderness. Next generation. And they're about to enter the promised land. And they were supposed to evaluate their own hearts as they were surrounded by nations and about to be surrounded by nations and tempted to sort of mix in with these idolatrous pagan practices and their idols offered of comfort and power and pleasure and all sorts of things. So this writing is not only to say, hey, listen, trust the Lord in your battles, but it's also to say, look at Pharaoh and beware of a hard, idolatrous heart. Because do you know what happened to Israel? You read the story throughout the rest of the Old Testament? They do harden their hearts. They do turn to idolatry. They do forget their deliverer. This is why Hebrews takes that and applies it to to Christians in the New Covenant, us as well, and says in Hebrews 3, 7, and 8, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. 
Friends, here's the question Pharaoh's hard heart confronts us with. Are you aware of the battle of allegiance in your own heart? Right now, at this moment, your heart, your inner person, your, your, your desires, your affections are trusting in something for meaning and significance and purpose and salvation. Is it the Lord or is it something else? Don't harden your heart. Proverbs 4 says, keep the heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Are our own hearts being hardened and we may be unaware of it? David Murray, just in closing, he gives these three really practical questions to assess whether or not our hearts are, are being hardened towards the Lord. Questions to ask yourself, maybe wrestle with this afternoon or this week in prayer. First, are you dismissing God's word? As Pharaoh continually, and he does it continually through this process, as he continually dismisses God's word instead of responding in humility, what happens? His heart gets harder and harder and harder. It's this vicious cycle. So friend, when you hear the word of God, maybe it's preached, maybe you read it, do you take it to heart? Do you ask, how is God calling me to humbly repent through this passage, to conform my life to the image of, of Jesus? Or do you sort of just sort of shrug your shoulders and go through the religious routine? God does not desire more head knowledge if it doesn't lead to a transformed heart and a changed life. A sure way to harden your heart against God is to cumul accumulate a bunch of knowledge about God without repenting and turning to him and being conformed into the image of Christ. Number one, are you dismissing God's word? Second question, are you dismissing God's power? Have you ever thought, listen, if, if God could just work a miracle, then my non-Christian friend would believe. Right? If he just like showed up and was like, here I am, believe in me. Well, it's just not true. We see it all throughout the Bible. Pharaoh's an example of this. He's seen all sorts of demonstrations of God's power, but he will not believe because his heart was hardened. He just dismissed it. I think we do this in a number of ways. We dismiss God's power by, by losing our sense of wonder in his glorious creation. We attribute it to something else. We dismiss his power by, by doubting his ability to work in dire situations we're in. Or, or by doubting that he can save a sinner who seems far from him. There's all sorts of ways we dismiss God's power. And when we do, we're slowly hardening our hearts. And then third and finally, are you dismissing God's judgment? Are you dismissing God's word? Dismissing God's power? Are you dismissing God's judgment? As we'll soon see, Pharaoh denies the reality of God's judgment through the plagues and he refuses to humble himself until it's too late. Not only does he lose his firstborn son, but eventually he loses his life because of this. Friends, this is an extremely unpopular truth in our day, the judgment of God, of sin, but it is a clear biblical reality. God will judge all unrighteousness. And if we, we scoff at the judgment and righteousness of God, then we're ignoring this important aspect of the gospel. We're hardening our hearts. Hebrews 9.27 in the Christian Standard Bible says this, and just as it is appointed for people to die once, and then judgment. So brothers and sisters, let's wrestle with those questions, right? Now here's the good news. 
All of our hearts can be hardened in certain ways. So when we answer yes to those, our gracious God invites us to come to him and receive his grace. And what does he do? He reminds us of the gospel. He reestablishes the battle plan. He can overpower hard hearts. And through Christ, who lived and died for us, he gives us a new heart that loves and worships and cherishes him. So friends, let's know that as we face the battles of our own lives, let's remind ourselves of the, the battle plan of the gospel, redemption through judgment for his covenant people. Right? Let's, let's be equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit and let's be refreshed as we evaluate our own hearts and turn to him.